Welcome to the Informed Simplicity Podcast. I'm Dr. Jordan Hayes here with Dr. Julia Conroy. This is our Polyvago series. In this series, taking a shared journey to learn more about how stress impacts our bodies from a polyvagal perspective. If you're a therapist or counselor, you can earn CEs by listening. Check the description to learn how you can listen and earn. At the beginning of each episode, we like to review the basics of polyvagal theory. Polyvagal theory tells us that our bodies have three ways of responding, all depending on how safe or threatened we feel. First, when we we feel safe or only a little challenged, our bodies are designed to seek connection. This is when our bodies are primed for growth and physical healing. But sometimes we face outright challenges. When this happens, our heart rate and breathing speed up and we go into our second response, fight or flight. This is when our bodies are primed for movement. This is also when we are prone irritation and anxiety. And if we're facing what feels like a life-threatening situation, our heart rate and breathing slow way down, and we use our their response, freezing. There are different types of freezing. Some of the types of freezing are things like going numb, fainting, feeling depressed, or having chronic fatigue and lethargy. However, our bodies respond to challenges and threats. The important thing to remember is all of these systems are working together to maximize protection for our most vulnerable systems. In short, our bodies are designed to keep us safe. To understand the relationship between these three responses and our physical and mental health, we're looking at the extensive research on how stress impacts our bodies. Our main text for this is Robert Sapolsky's book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. This is Sapolsky's uh, chapter on stress and mothers. I love the name of this, of this chapter. <laughs> um, dwarfism and the importance of mothers. That's right. <laughs> It really gets down to it. It really gets down to it. So Dr. Conroy, why don't you start us off? Yeah, because what we're really doing through Zapolsky's lens here is kind of trying to understand that second response that Jordan described with more clarity, right? That fight or flight response is really Zapolsky's focus, um, is what happens um, when the body senses that threat and is trying to adjust and adapt. Uh, And so that's really what he's looking at here. And as he's talking about mothers and talking about dwarfism in it, he initially starts just kind of talking about the appreciating the complexity of how we grow as people. Obviously, uh, maybe for those of us that are parents or expecting parents or have just been around a child, um, we know that this is, you know, a really fast process in some ways and a really slow process in others. Of course, like the brain getting bigger, the cell division that, that requires, the proteins that are synthesized, the bones that grow, the, all of the organs that grow, the baby fat that, that kind of sheds eventually and gets replaced by muscle. This is all a big process of growth. Um, and again, 
Zapolsky's point consistently is typical human functioning requires a lot of the body. And so it's easy to miss. It's easy to not appreciate the complexity of it, but he really breaks that down to help us appreciate all the growth hormones are doing um, in order to get that body to the next stage of development. Um, so that's breaking down fat stores um, so that they can be converted into growing cells. Um, it's looking to kind of activate the thyroid hormone, um, which allows our bones to grow in the way that they're meant to, the reproductive hormones that come into play around puberty. Um, all of this is happening. And again, it, it's easy to, to miss because it's not conscious. This is just what our bodies do. Um, but I don't need to tell any parent of an adolescent or any parent of, of a toddler that's in the midst of a big growth spurt, appetites change, <laughs> um, that the body is needing more in that phase. It's requiring more energy because it takes a lot for the body to grow in the way that it does, for brains to develop and get everything they're meant to, for the muscles, for the bones to get everything that they're meant to get. So it's appreciating the complexity that goes into just typical development that we see um, from, from most children. But with all that goes into that, all the hormones, all um, of the fat stores that get broken down, all the energy that's converted, again, because this process is so complex, because it's so layered, that again, opens up a lot of room for when there is stress present for that process to be interrupted. Uh, and so that's what we're gonna be talking about today is the way that that growth process can get interrupted. I uh, love that you said that, even as you're talking, it just really struck me, right? Like the attachment process is linked inherently to the growth process mm -hmm. and we don't necessarily mean like my emotional growth we mean like physically mm -hmm. growing from a child mm -hmm. into a teenager to an adult mm -hmm. and i think you see this when you know a lot of the um so he he, he talks in the book about prenatal stress right mm -hmm. and so how stress even before we're born impacts how we grow after we're born. And then he talks, so that's sort of like the first part of the book, right? And then he talks in the book about, um, well, I, we, we should even touch on this, but how like after you're born, when you're a child or a toddler, stress impacts your body's ability to physically grow. And if there's a lot of stress, and not a lot of caregiver support, you end up with things like failure to thrive, right? Where mm -hmm. babies literally do not grow. Mm -hmm. And then it even goes into like young childhood, right? Talking about, okay, um, we know that people in, who, are, who are in emotionally connected environments, like physically grow, and those who are in really abusive, negative environments, like mm -hmm. don't <laughs> grow, right? <laughs> Yeah. And so as you're saying that, I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, a huge part of stress is literally on do your bones lengthen when they're supposed to, right? Like, mm -hmm. like, like, oh, yeah, that's crazy. 
mm-hmm. our body to that fine tune to stress. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> it is. And, and I always feel like this is a really important disclaimer. Anytime we're talking about attachment, anytime that we're talking about child development, um, specifically for parents um, that might be listening, because I do, I think that this can be a really sensitive topic of, okay, if my child is only in, you know, the, the 14th percentile, right, for where they should be, does that mean I've been stressful? Does that mean all of these things, right? And it can really open the door for shame to set in around what causes might be present and what um, might have to, to be a contributing factor, right, for my child's development. Um, and that's a scary place to be. And so I just want to acknowledge for parents that might be listening and might be kind of assessing where their child is. I want to recognize all children will experience stress, right? And that's okay. In fact, it's actually a very good thing that your child experiences stress in your home, right? And if this worries you, um, that, okay, have they experienced too much stress? Is that a result of it? The answer is probably no. Um, if you have that degree of empathy, if you have that level of concern, if you're caring for your child in these ways, then it's likely that they've, they're in a safe home where they know that their needs are met. And a lot of the stress that we're talking about here that can have such devastating consequences is not, I have thrown tantrums six days in a row, um, but it's more, I don't know where my next meal is coming from. I don't know, um, unfortunately, pretty severe cases of, of abuse and neglect, that it's really that degree of stress that we're going to be referring to that has this impact on growth and development. Um, and so I just think that that's really important to include. I don't want to set off any unnecessary panic alarms. If you're listening to this as a parent, you're probably pretty emotionally attuned with your child. Um, but it's really just kind of appreciating the impact that stress can have on growth and development. Um, but understanding that within reason, we're talking about really severe stress that impairs growth. Yes. I think that's such a necessary sort of disclaimer and also acknowledgement, right? Because we're talking about the connection between parenting and growth. We don't want parents to walk away from this feeling shamed. Most of the time in these examples that we're going to give, it's extreme cases of neglect Mm -hmm. and abuse. Mm -hmm. And the chances are, if you're listening to this, that's probably probably not your situation, right? And then I think the other side of that is, if you do struggle, mm-hmm. right? Because of polyvagal theory, we know that it's not your destiny. Mm-hmm. So things can change. So mm-hmm. there's also hope. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's such an important thing to say because parenting is a very personal thing. It's very personal. It's tied into your hopes for your future, for your kid's future. It's tied into the past with you and your own parents. Like there's, there's, a, there's a lot of, um, of weight 
mm-hmm. right? I mean, parenting changes your identity like mm-hmm. almost nothing else does. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of weight and we want to respect that mm-hmm. and say, okay, okay. We're going to talk about this, but mm-hmm. also know that this probably doesn't apply to you and it doesn't, it doesn't mean that you're a bad person or a, or mm-hmm. a bad parent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. So let's talk about prenatal stress and the Dutch winter hunger, which is this is one of my favorite stories. (laughs) When you say it's one of your favorite stories, I just get like so worried for your kids. Like the Dutch hunger story is like equivalent to like, you know, little red riding. Every child's hearing. I mean, they're both Dutch, right? So obviously, (laughs) obviously. Yeah, I mean, full disclosure, this is the way that I, you know, harm my kids. I just tell them <laughs> dying stories every night, and they're like, Dad, stop. <laughs> We've all got some way we're doing it. <laughs> yeah. Do you want me to, uh, yeah, why don't you sort of just give a brief overview of the Dutch winter hunger? I'm honored that you would have me summarize one of your favorite stories. <laughs> and I start with that. <laughs> Um, And so basically what the Dutch winter hunger population ultimately shows us, if I can zoom out and and give big picture, um, is that we actually saw that during this pretty extensive famine, that it wasn't just, you know, the people that were living during this famine that were impacted and not just their children that were impacted in addition to that, their grandchildren were also born with lower than expected birth rates or weights. Yeah, um, so, birth, birth, birth rates, yeah. And, and so with that, it kind of, I mean, it's definitely been talked about and kind of established in other ways, but um, so this was specifically, that's kind of what it shows us big picture. Um, but this is um, like the story during World War II occupying Nazis um, where obviously we're trying to, to be pushed back um, and the Dutch were trying to aid the allies that were coming to, to liberate them. The Nazis cut off their food um, and then obviously the Dutch people starve as that food is being cut off. So people during this time are consuming less than 1000 calories a day. Um, and we're eating things like tulip bulbs, uh, just to sustain life. Um, and, and we saw over 16,000 people um, during this crisis that starved to death. And, and so obviously this is really severe um, impact. The level of stress that's present yeah. um, is huge there, but also what we see in those decreasing birth rates, weights three year, or three generations later, right, is that this isn't just directly impacting what's present in, in the slow down metabolism at that time. Though, if you are a first trimester fetus during that famine, of course, you're going to be at greater risk for all of those things, because as your organs are forming, um, that, that's pretty impacted by that, that famine and that deprivation. But we also see this taking place not only in, in the people impacted their children, but their children, which yeah. shows that stress, again, this is extreme stress to this degree um, is coded within 
the genes that are passed on. um, And we kind of see the ripples of that effect. I I really like how Sapolsky sort of frames this too, right? He says, what is childhood? What is childhood about? It's a time when you make assessments of the nature of the world, which is totally an attachment statement. And basically what he's saying is because these, because the, the Dutch during World War II were starved and were going through the, the loss of so many of their friends and family members, all of these moms who were having kids, all these pregnant women, they were very, very stressed, right? And so when their babies were born, they had all these metabolic issues. And one of the sort of outcomes of that was they had lower birth birth weights because their bodies are basically primed to say, okay, the world that I'm going into has less resources. So my body needs to conserve as much as possible, right? And because their, their metabolism sort of set up that way, when they then go on to have kids and those, and those kids of the World War II generation go on to have kids, their bodies are still sort of like um, collecting all these resources, which means that they give their babies less resources, which means that those kids, you know, the third generation out are still impacted by this thing. And I think it's one of my favorite stories because of how long lasting this trauma is, right? On a physiological, physiological level, it's not just, the mentality of it. it's not just the the cognitions and the thoughts that go along with that it's like man physically mm-hmm. this is impacting people's bodies for multiple generations that's Absolutely. just it's just um shows the depth that sometimes trauma can have on mm-hmm. people for Absolutely. generations and um i think that we uh you know, I'd be foolish not to include with that too, that we don't just see this with regard to starvation, but there's actually a lot of um, research being done right now of kind of establishing the effect that this even has racially um, and the racial stress that was so present, right? And even if overt racism isn't as present as it was in the 60s, right? That doesn't change the fact that the severe degree of stress that that generation did experience was passed on not only to their children through socialization, but also through their genes, right? And not only that, but that's passed on to their grandchildren as well, where maybe it it looks different right now. And yet that trauma is still encoded in such a big way. Um, and was having a conversation with a colleague of ours, uh, Dr. James Hawkins, who's a phenomenal clinician. Um, and he was talking about like, I have to appreciate this context as a black man. I'm not just holding my own trauma, right? But generationally and genetically, I know that past trauma has also been stored within me and I carry the weight of that too. Um, so also just wanna appreciate the complexity Um, with which that trauma is passed on, that it doesn't just extend, you know, to physiological starvation, but just this consistent fear and pressure and, um, yeah, just concern too for loved ones and that that all of that stress that is so severe and feels life-threatening 
all of that is encoded and then passed on as well. Yeah, I mean, and it's not just about the things that are happened to you and to your ancestors, right? Mm -hmm. It's also about the ways that that comes out now. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, one of the big ways with the Dutch winter hunger kids is that they had lower birth weights, mm-hmm. right? And were more likely to be like obese and have metabolic mm-hmm. issues. But they also had higher rates of things like anxiety and depression. Yeah, yeah. And so the same thing is happening now, right? The, the children of the 60s, especially mm-hmm. people like me who are, you know, African-American and sort of uh, holding that trauma, mm-hmm. like... A lot of us have higher rates of anxiety and depression, mm-hmm. you know, that's been sort of the, that's the unfortunate legacy of the things that our grandparents and our parents had to face every day. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And also wanting to recognize like as a white woman, my racial trauma looks like being insensitive, right. And being unaware being and choosing to be ignorant to the plight of my black brothers and sisters and all people of color right and that's what my trauma looks like is just that ignorance right and that that shifts even the way that that gene is expressed in me and my ability to be empathic in that sense and so being aware of the way that this is passed on through the genes and and is established before we leave the womb, this has been encoded on us and is a part of us, helps us to be aware of the ways that that trauma translates from generation to generation, just so we can appreciate the fullness of, yes, my experience, but also the experience of those around me that I might not be able to fully take in because I can only see what's right in front of me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's really important. I don't like how you said that, but you do. You want to take in the full person when you're sitting mm-hmm. with them. And some of that's obvious, right? Mm-hmm. And some of that's not obvious. And I think we don't necessarily have to know what's not obvious because it's, it's not obvious. Yeah. But we do need to be aware of the fact that there is more going on there than we realize. Yeah. There's, more than, there's more going on there than is first present to us. Absolutely, especially as we're appreciating this idea of growth and development, right? And what Zapolsky does so great in this chapter is just help us to appreciate before you leave the womb, right? If there have been severe levels of stress that's impacted, and that also um, he uses this term fetal origins of adult disease, that if there have been Um, strong degrees of stress present, that that actually increases your propensity um, for diseases later in life. Um, So things like obesity, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, um, insulin resistant form of diabetes, reproductive impairments, impaired brain development, all of this, right, that can have an effect on um, later functioning in life is a part of that prenatal stress result. Yeah. And so Zapolsky doesn't just leave us there, <laughs> aware of all the things that can go wrong <laughs> before a child leaves the womb. Um, but like you said, he kind of charts through um, these different levels of development um, and kind of the effect that stress can have on lifelong 
uh, development and what that looks like. Yeah, right, because then he goes into postnatal stress. Right. And I think we should probably give a brief overview of attachment here, right? So just so people have a little bit of a context in which to like understand, I think the next few chapters, the next few mm -hmm. sections. So attachment is this idea um, sort of coined by John Bowlby, um, who again was a psychotherapist uh, during World War II. And what he saw was all of these orphans, all of these orphans of World War II, all these kids who were sort of um, not just orphaned, but also abandoned when their parents went off to fight in the war or join the war effort, had huge rates of delinquency, depression, and other issues. Um, and he'd been looking at the research, the cross uh, species research. And he had looked at how, like, you know, young ducks, ducks will imprint on a parent. Mm follow that, that parent around and he said something similar happens to young kids that when it that they need that person to imprint on to attach to mm -hmm. to follow around um, and when that doesn't happen they wind up like the kids that I'm seeing the kids with depression mm -hmm. and anxiety and delinquency mm -hmm. issues um, and this was sort of his big theory but the person who really put it on the map who sort of made it actionable was a lady named Mary Ainsworth Mm -hmm. And she's huge because what she did was she took the theory and she was she developed a way to test it. Mm -hmm. And so basically what she did was she took kids with their parents, typically a mom, and she put them in a room. And she observed them playing and she had the mom leave. And a stranger would come in. And kids. Would. Well, and then the parent would, would come back in, right? And she called this experiment the strange situation, right? And basically what she was watching is how do these kids respond to their parents when their parents come back into the room? Mm -hmm. And she found basically at first glance was people respond in one of, these kids respond in one of three ways, right? Some kids, when the parent comes back into the room, they run to the parent, they're like so happy that the parent is back and then they are okay. They go back, they go back to playing, right? Some kids, the parents come in the room, the kid looks at the parent and goes back to playing. And then the last group of kids in her original sort of experiment, um, they see the parent, they run to the parent and they're inconsolable. They never really calm down. And what she discovered by following these kids over time was the first group, the kids who looked at the parent, ran to them, um, hugged them, greeted them, and went back to playing. Those were kids who had positive outcomes long-term. So she called these kids securely attached. They can securely depend on their caregiver in a new strange situation. The second group of kids once you looked at their parent and then went back, were the kid, uh, kids who everyone thought was fine. But what she actually found out was that underneath the surface, they were not okay, right? Mm -hmm. Even though the kids appeared to keep going back to, to playing long-term, they had all sorts of problems. And when they checked the kids in the moment, these kids 
had like higher heart rates, right? They were internally, their bodies were saying, this is a strange situation. A stranger's here. I don't know what's going on. And these are the kids that they labeled um, avoidant, right? They didn't, they avoided their attachment figure. They, they avoided their needs for connection just to someone else. And then the third group of kids, the ones who ran to the parents and couldn't be consoled, these kids were obviously anxious. And long-term, they also had poor health and mental health mm -hmm. outcomes. And so from this, they learned that what kids need to be successful long-term is an attachment that is secure mm -hmm. to a older typically an older, wiser other, right? Mm. So that's sort of like the basic history of like, you know, human attachment that we've mm -hmm. studied in, in the field. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, Absolutely. I would love to then to get into some of this stuff about these kids who were in these orphans, but if you want to give a few thoughts. Oh, yes. I think that's a beautiful review of attachment. And I think I can talk about attachment all day, so I'll be really careful not to. Um, but I think what I ultimately, the maybe misconception I hear most about attachment is, okay, that means that we have to be together all the time. It means like you're, it's like kind of used with like codependent a lot, um, maybe that idea. And so I think that the place that I got most clear on secure attachment is it means I know that I have a secure base to return to. Like, I know when things get crazy, this is kind of a safe place, a safe relationship I can go back to. And that doesn't make me cling to that really tightly. But when it's securely attached, it means I can explore. <laughs> it means I can try new things. It means I can do something I've never done before because I know when it hits the fan, I've got a safe place to go back to and the world's not going to crumble. I think that was really huge for me. And I think even interpreting that through a polyvagal lens, what that's kind of saying is we're not looking for a place where you're never stressed and never activated, right? But you have some surety in the ways you can activate your social engagement system when you are stressed, that I can reach out for someone, that I can look for that comfort in those moments. Um, and that secure attachment is such a big piece when we're talking about growth and development in the body's response to stress, because basically the Polsky goes through all these different studies on rats and on people and everything in between, um, that basically show that just getting your physiological needs is not going to be enough, uh, to thrive. And so, so there let, were me, a few, let me, oh, let me jump in here. Cause something that you said a while ago to me really sort of brought this home and I had never heard it this way. And I was like, how did I miss that for a decade? Cause we were talking about parenting and my youngest and um, my youngest has this habit, right. Of playing with my oldest and falling down and getting hurt and a run to me. And I was talking to you about this. I don't even know if this was recorded if this was on a podcast, but maybe it was just out, outside of this. And he and he he always runs to me, right? And he'll just lay his head on my shoulder and I'll hold him for a minute or two, right? And then he'll go back to what he's doing, right? Mm -hmm. And I'd be like, why does this kid not learn? <laughs> 
And you said something, and I wish I could say it the way that you said it, because it was so elegant, but it was like, that's secure attachment. Because he knows he can go to you, he then has the courage to go and get knocked down again, mm -hmm. right? Like, because he knows he can go to you, that's why he will go back and try to jump off the couch again, right? Whatever it is, <laughs> He's not afraid to do that anymore because he has mm -hmm. the security of, I can always go back here. And I was like, oh my mm -hmm. gosh, that's a beautiful picture. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to paint that picture very clearly. And I appreciate you for, for, for doing that because our fear for a lot of us in this idea of attachment or mm -hmm. codependency is if I have that person, I'll never leave. Mm -hmm. And so what we think of as healthy is the person who's avoidant i don't need my mom i can keep playing <laughs> but what we know actually is um if you are secure in that relationship that is what allows you to go off and do all the other fun exploratory things mm -hmm. absolutely because it's annoying when it's falling off the couch it's just like quit playing on the couch <laughs> right but when you think about years down the road let's say i think the world of jordan's kids um that will become clearly apparent if we keep talking about that <laughs> um but let's say one day julian is a coder right and he's like developing all this new code and he keeps hitting these blocks right where it's like i just can't figure this out well as a parent right how encouraging would it be just when he fails miserably right just to come back to you and just say dad I cannot figure this out, right? And just for you to co-regulate in that moment and be like, that is so hard. You're giving it your best. That makes so much sense, right? Him returning to you allows him to go and enter that space and to try again with that code differently, right? And from a sustained and regulated place. Whereas if that secure attachment isn't present, he's going to burn himself out because his whole uh, sense of worth, right, is dependent on him doing this. Right? And he's going to hate it by the end of it, right? Or it's like, this is too hard. I hate how this makes me feel about myself. I don't want to code ever again, right? That this is such a beautiful thing when it's seen later in life, when you're able to regulate in this capacity um, and seeing the building blocks of that now is so, so important because it translates in much bigger ways later. Yeah, I agree. All right, let's go into this next section, Jules. Okay, I really wanted to touch on this one study just because I found it so interesting and then we can, can keep moving. But as the Polsky just gives us all these examples of how important attachment is, how having physiological needs met is, can't be it. Um, he references specifically um, this experiment um, which, my gosh, I hope it wasn't like sanctioned because this is awful, um, of two different orphanages in Germany after World War II took place. So both of these orphanages were run by the government and they, they did set controls in place, meaning the kids had the same diet, the same frequency of doctor's visits. They were given the same physiological care and access to resources and all those things, the primary difference um, that was set in place between these orphanages was the primary caretaker. 
One of them um, being a warm, nurturing mother figure who played with the children, who comforted them, who sang with them and laughed with them. Um, the other was more focused on kind of the professional aspects, minimized contact, um, was seen uh, that her disciplinary approach was more focused on like public criticism and berating um, in front of their peers. And what these found is that the growth rates of the kids in these two orphanages were significantly different. The one that were raised in that harsher environment where they're not given as much contact, not allowed as much room to play and, and these bonding experiences with their caretaker were significantly shorter um, and were significantly underweight um, and grew at a significantly slower pace, pace than the kids in the other orphanage. Um, and it even says to the point where at some point the caretakers are, you know, transition out. Um, and then what they're we like find swapped, is, aren't they? I think they're like not, swapped or something. Or, yeah, they said not swapped because I think one like retired, the sweet nurturing oh, one. Oh, the sweet like, one retired. retired. That's right. Yes. And the critical and, one moves to the to the one where everyone was, was happy. Well, and we <laughs> see that growth rate. Um, actually increase after kind of that harsher one leaves that their, their growth rates increase significantly after she goes, right. And presumably a more nurturing figure was placed in. Um, But then also after the nurturing figures leaves um, the first orphanage, that their growth rates actually slow. And so, my gosh, this is terrifying that this was, Oh, brought into awareness and all these things. It's kind of a disturbing example. Um, but it does point something to the impact that this attachment and that these bonding co-regulatory experiences act basically all the things that the first um, caretaker did to activate the social engagement system allowed for them, right, to grow um, at a more typical rate because all of these children have experienced trauma right? They're all living in an orphanages in post-World War II Germany. There's no way that there's not trauma present, right? But just seeing the difference um, that that caretaker can make, I think was really interesting. Pointed out in a ton of different studies than this, but that was kind of one that, that stood out to me. Yeah, right. I think that for me, that's, I mean, in the book, he has a chart. So you can see it, right? Like when the mm-hmm. critical caregiver goes to sort of the happy orphanage you see the happy orphanage kids stop growing and you see the kids who are at you know her original site start growing <laughs> like you can see like the hockey stick and it's like oh. these poor kids mm-hmm. you know these poor kids mm-hmm. it makes me think about my own i remember i had a teacher in high school i'll never forget her never forget her and every Monday we, we would go in and she'd say, good morning. We'd say, good morning, Miss Morgan. And she'd say, I love you. And we'd say, we love you, Miss Morgan. You know, we were all in high school, right? She, she was my favorite teacher. And just because she was that warm, like comforting presence. And she was very strict. She was very strict, had very firm, firm boundaries. But whenever I was talking to her, 
I always felt like this woman cares. Mm -hmm. And that sort of energy is what we're sort of talking about. Right. Absolutely. I find that, that the people in my life that most embody that didn't let me get away with everything I want, right. The coaches that I think of the teachers that I think of didn't just let me run wild. I thought I knew that they cared. Um, and I knew that when I really needed something, I could reach out, that they were a safe base for me to return to. Yeah. So not only does that stand out in our memories, not only does that give us the warm fuzzies as we think about that person, but Zapolsky, that the research that he lays out here says it also allows for typical development, forming those connections, forming those bonds, promotes the typical development processes um, that, that we see in children. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and I think that's sort of the the thing that I hope we're in sort of this transition period, right? Like, if you look at the history of this, the beginning of the nineteenth of the of the nineteen hundreds, parents weren't even allowed into hospitals to see their kids, right? And orphanages and homes for kids were very, very strict and rule-based, right? And there was a sort of cultural narrative of, we don't want to um, make kids weak by giving them too much support. Mm-hmm. And what we've seen for all of those kids is that they have issues like this, right? Where mm-hmm. they don't grow, they have higher rates of delinquency, mm-hmm. higher rates of anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. And the crazy thing is, the crazy thing is, they also had higher rates of infection and disease, mm-hmm. right? Because their bodies were not in a state mm-hmm. to take care of itself. Yeah. Their bodies were having a chronic prolonged stressor because they had the lack of that attachment figure there. Mm-hmm. And it actually made health outcomes worse. And it's just sort of like, wow, like this thing is really, really important. So Absolutely. And Zapolsky touches in the book on the research that shows why this is, especially as it pertains to growth, um, because the growth hormone that's secreted in the body and says, all right, let's get moving. Like, let's get things um, expanding here. It's actually secreted by the pituitary gland which is regulated by the hypothalamus. So again, we've talked a lot in this series about the body's response to stress, but just as a refresher, when the body experiences severe levels of stress, it says stop (laughs) to everything non-essential and let's prioritize everything that's gonna mobilize us and promote survival right now in this moment with the stress that's present. So it presses pause on the secretion of that hormonal uh, release, meaning the growth hormone isn't present in the bloodstream as long as that stress response is there. And it's not, and I think the thing is that we're talking about with this idea of attachment is that what we see in the social engagement system through the polyvagal lens, because the social engagement system, because that secure bond allows me to regulate myself and takes me out of that fight or flight response. That means that things are, are geared up again and that, that growth hormone can be secreted. 
um, the way that it's meant to. And so overactivity of that sympathetic nervous system over at like sustained stress responses, like we've talked about before, inhibits that hormone from even being released. In the most severe circumstances, we see this manifesting as stress dwarfism, which is really rare. Um, it's not the type of stress of like, I've got traffic, someone's yelling at me. This is seen in really, really severe cases of abuse and neglect. And maybe we can all see in our minds some story, like tragic, truly story that we've seen on the news where kids have been confined to a house or confined to a room um, for a sustained period of time. And there's so many issues that stem from that. But one of that is typically we see them um, to be smaller in stature, to be lower in body weight. A lot of times it's because food has been restricted, but we also see this component of because they're in such high degrees of life-threatening stress for such sustained and critical periods of growth, we see that stunting that um, in a lifelong capacity just because that growth hormone can't be secreted in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you said that, right? Because we're not talking about uh, normal everyday stress. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about even like a one-off sort of acute trauma, right? Mm -hmm. being, in a, being in Hurricane Katrina, mm -hmm. being in Vietnam. Um, we're talking about sustained terror mm -hmm. when you're at your most vulnerable. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk? I know you're like best friends with Bruce Perry. <laughs> Do you want to just give a brief overview of some of some of the stuff that he's he's found? Maybe I shouldn't say best 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 friends, you know, but I feel like I he very like much appreciate Bruce Perry's work. Uh, he and Rick Gaskell have done some incredible work um, of just talking about kind of this idea and in developing. Um, his the neurosequential neuro model, right? model of therapeutics, right? Which is basically saying, okay, because these processes get stunted, these growth processes and brain development processes that all of this gets stunted early in life because of the severe stress response, basically they've, their findings indicate you have to hit those milestones before and kind of establish that foundation before you can build higher order processes. So a lot of their early, and I'm not certified or anything like that, but have just looked into the research um, that basically says, okay, first we just try to do um, really basic calming techniques that most infants receive, that our therapeutic process looks like rocking and it looks like finding a rhythm and it looks like kind of hitting these milestones that should have been hit much earlier in life, knowing that if we don't establish that foundation, we have nothing to build on. Even if I'm seeing a child for the first time, seven, eight years old, but they never experienced that due to that severe abuse or neglect, I have to start there. I have to start with those infant processes and then build up according to that neurodevelopmental model to kind of, with the hopes of eventually catching them up to speed, but not being able to introduce them to the therapeutic process that a typical seven-year-old would be able to, to benefit from. Which is, I think, very polyvagal, right? In a sense, mm -hmm. because 
part of what polyvagal says is it's our body's felt sense that we have to sort of have first yeah that then allows us to do higher order things right so even mm-hmm. porges would say like the most important thing in talk therapy is how safe and comfortable you feel with the therapist not the totally. words that are being said mm-hmm. and he would even say like things that are really important for kids to get are things like play like mm-hmm. that has to happen first before they can really do sort of the higher order things like thinking through their d- decisions yeah so i think that's all sort of aligned doesn't perry mm-hmm. have some sort of stat like severe tr- neglect of trauma in the first three months shows up just as bad or worse than like from three months to like 12 years so- something like that yeah i'm not sure know. if i've heard that statistic but i believe you yeah but it's basically like this 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 idea that like when you're at your most vulnerable in those first three three months if you get traumatized then if you have severe neglect and um trauma then mm-hmm. that's a huge predictor for outcomes later on yeah. so it's sort of the same idea of like parallel um parallel to when this stuff happens to you mm-hmm. it's also a big indicator of how it impacts you mm-hmm. yeah absolutely um so then we talk about hospitals mm-hmm. and touch. Mm-hmm. Can you sort of give us a brief overview of touch and, and how that makes a big difference here? Yeah, absolutely. And, and so basically the the overview um, that Zapolsky goes into is just talking about, and again, this has huge, I think, polyvagal implications as well, right? That you had referenced uh, at one point, you know, parents aren't able to come in um, to the hospital with their child. But actually what we see um, is that this uh, level of, of affection and, and closeness, right, this degree of touch through a polyvagal lens, we would think um, activates that social engagement system, right, which we know decreases that stress response and allows for that immune functioning that has been suppressed in that activation um, to promote better rates of healing, um, to promote increased immunity. um, Because I have this social engagement activated, my body can prioritize on fighting, not what it perceives to be an immediate stressor or fear, right? That's so clearly um, a part of the hospital experience. Um, but can really prioritize the immunity that's necessary in the healing process that's necessary for why I'm in the hospital in yeah. the first place. I think for me, this was one of the the most polyvagal part of this mm-hmm. whole book, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because Sapolsky is really saying, okay, we know that this happens, that if you have a secure person that you can go to, if you if you have a relationship that you can go to, that you are healthier. But what's the pathway for this? And he basically says, yeah, touch, right? Touch is a big thing. And I think on the one hand, that's that's very polyvagally informed, right? Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, it's like the thing that makes touch safe is if you have the safe relationship, right? Mm -hmm. If a weirdo comes into my room when I'm in the hospital, (laughs) says, let me hold your hand. I'm going to be like, I don't know you. Like, that's not the same thing. But if my wife comes in, holds my hand that's when my body can go okay 
-hmm. I can make it through this. I can, I can heal. I can grow. I can Mm -hmm. restore. Mm -hmm. I think the only other thing, and I know we're um, coming up to, to our time here is when I first read this stuff and was studying a bunch of this stuff, um, I felt kind of confused about the difference between attachment and polyvagal. Mm-hmm. And after listening to Porges uh, talk about this, he says polyvagal theory is the preamble to, to attachment, right? Mm-hmm. And part of what that means is we're looking at that the same thing, right? We're reading from the same book. Mm-hmm. But what polyvagal theory is really sort of tuning into is what are the cues mm-hmm. of safety and how does the body respond? Mm-hmm. And so Absolutely. that's why things like having a melodic voice, mm-hmm. you know, which is an inherent cue of safety or um, taking longer out breaths, which is an inherent cue of turning off the sympathetic nervous system. Mm-hmm. Or if you're safe, you know, being able to touch someone mm-hmm. are sort of um, polyvagal cues mm-hmm. that, that, that we look for in relationships, right? And attachment is more about what's my internal model of the world and of my close people, Mm -hmm. right? So they're looking at the same thing, but just from a different perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And from a polyvagal perspective, it's like, if you're so stuck and rigid in fight or flight, or you're dissociated, right? Because your dorsal vagal uh, complex has been activated, then what shot do you have, <laughs> right, at, at social engagement and at secure attachment, right? And, and so they do, they take kind of um, different perspectives and, and maybe put different language to that, but ultimately both are pointing to the healing power that relationships ultimately have in making us our most resilient and best functioning selves. Yeah. Okay, Dr. Conroy, let's wrap it up here. Um, What's your closing thought? What's your closing thought from this chapter? I think closing thought here, um, I love talking about attachment. I love talking about the power that relationships have. and I think even as you, you know, you talked about your teacher, I think the reason I love talking about it so much is it allows me to kind of pull on my own attachment longings um, and the safe spaces I have and the ways that that promotes growth even now in me, maybe less physically um, as a grown adult woman uh, than it did in my childhood. But just, I think I'm kind of left appreciating thinking about the own my own safe spaces that I had growing up that allowed me to thrive the way that they did. Um, but also some sadness mixed with hope of that that's not the case for a lot of people I interact with. Um, that's not the case for a lot of people that I care for. Um, and that that's a very sad thing that that opportunity to thrive wasn't presented but I think like we keep referencing this hope that also doesn't seal their fate um, 
for who they are that especially through this polyvagal and it is so hopeful um, that they can find a new way of functioning and a new way of regulating. Um, so I think that was kind of a blend um, and more of a personal reflection there. Yeah. I think for me, my closing thought is the hope that I think is sort of embedded in this. Mm-hmm. And I think that goes back to the Dutch winter hunger and the mm-hmm. intergenerational transmission of like racial mm-hmm. trauma. It's like for those of us who are children of that, when we find safe and secure others, like healing can happen. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's also that hope, you know, that even, even when our bodies are primed one way, when we find those people and we can feel safe and secure, whether that's a friend or a therapist, um, then our bodies can return to the state of healing and growth. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, that's, that's the beautiful part of all of this. Mm-hmm. So. I love that. That's powerful. All right, Dr. Conroy, I'll see you next week. That sounds good. I'll be here. Hey, before you go, a few reminders. Since you finished this podcast, you might as well earn CEs for listening. Check out the description to find out how you can listen and earn CEs. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, if you learned something, please, please share this with a friend or leave us a review in iTunes. That would help us out a lot. All right. See you next week.